The simple act of turning on a light switch or faucet and having instant access to power and water belies the complex systems that make these fundamental resources of our lives possible. Electricity is generated by various processes, and the paths water takes to our faucets is often much longer and more complicated than we realize as their consumers. As producers, decisions the Navajo Nation has made regarding their involvement in resource extraction and energy production, both of which intersect questions of water, is even more complex. Participation is an act of sovereignty, and while promising benefits, it has come with costs and entanglements. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Renzi. This month, we speak with geographer Andrew Curley about his new book, Carbon Sovereignty, Whole Development and Energy Transition in the Navajo Nation. In this book, he guides us through some complicated history and points us to productive ways of strategizing on these issues in our complicated present. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Andrew Curley is a member of the Navajo Nation and an assistant professor in the School of Geography, Development, and Environment at the University of Arizona. His book, Carbon Sovereignty, Coal, Development, and Energy Transition in the Navajo Nation, was published by the University of Arizona Press in 2023. This work explores the history of coal and its dominating presence in the last half century of Navajo economies and everyday life. Used to fuel energy production, which is in turn used to provide Colorado River water to distant metropolitan centers like Phoenix and Tucson, coal and the Navajo Nation's decision to engage in its extraction and lease lands for the related Navajo generating station are much messier stories than you might imagine. The exercising of tribal sovereignty to participate in these kinds of industrial developments brought benefits to many, but also entrapped entire communities in economic relationships that bore extremely unbalanced power differentials. After decades of many Navajos centering their lives around these economies, the decisions to renew leases and agreements in the 2010s were understandably fraught, and they also complicate movements for energy transitions away from coal. The pressing nature of this is all the more intense 
when the Navajo Nation did renew the Navajo Generating Station lease in 2013 with the Salt River Project Utility. But then SRP soon decided to close the plant regardless. Curley's guiding us through these macro-level decision-making processes, along with his ethnographic work with individuals involved and impacted, can be incredibly useful for many around the West, whose communities, even if not indigenous, are likely grappling with their economic entanglements with different industries. In short, his work should push people to search broadly for solutions and to accept that there are no simple ones. The path forward will take work, and that work requires historical context, creative thinking, and open vistas without unnecessary blinders. Professor Andrew Curley, welcome to Writing Westward. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your book. Um, so let's just dive right in. Um, I want to start by kind of asking you to give us a sense of your personal uh, history with the American West and your connection with the region. Uh, yeah, interesting. I um, never thought about this, actually, uh, as a question. But yeah, I, um, I was born in Gallup, New Mexico, and um, lived most of my life in the Mountain West or the, the Western part of this continent, mainly in the Southwest, New Mexico and Arizona. And, um, and so this is pretty much the region I know best. Um, so this is kind of the center of my worldview, whereas, you know, in the way that we define the geography, it's seen as the West, but to me, it's more the center. So, um, so that's basically it. I mean, it's just the, where my family lives, uh, where, um, you know, the people I know, um, but you did all your schooling back east. Yeah, did, that's did, a good did that, point. Did that yes. change yes. your perspective on the region? Good point. Um, and I did spend some time in the Midwest uh, when I was a kid. So, um, so yeah, it actually did. It did influence um, how I thought about things in that I, I prefer to live out here. <laughs> that's the immediate thing I think about. I mean, um, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, see what that part of the country was like. Um, so that's why I did my schooling out there. I never, like before I went to Boston, I never been to Boston. So um, um, so to me, it was just an intriguing place to explore and visit. Um, but um, in the end, um, you know, this is not a, that's not a place where I wanted to live. Um, and so I ended up coming back out here. But yeah, no, getting back to the question, it did help me to think about What's different about this place? You know, how is it? And there's noticeable things. Just the style of life is different. As as many of the people here know, we have to drive a lot more. Um, for for many years, when I was living there, I didn't have to drive. I walked or biked most of the time. And then when I moved back to Arizona, there was a thing I noticed immediately: is the amount of driving I have to do to get between places. Now it's opposite. Now when I go back east to visit. I immediately like look for a car or in this case, get in a taxi or Uber to go to where I need to go. Cause I assume everything's by vehicle. And in fact, there's a lot of useful, uh, light rail or subways connected to airports. And so, uh, you know, those are just small, um, things unimportant really to probably the, the stake of things I will be talking about, but yeah, those <laughs> are, that's what I noticed when I'm back between the two places. Do you think about um, Navajo land, Navajo country, differently than you do the West more broadly as a region? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the Wests are, this is going to sound cheesy too. I think the Wests are many Wests. Yeah, you know, like from the Eastern standpoint, the West is this one big monolith. But as you know, the plains are different from uh, the Pacific Northwest. Very different kinds of ecologies, uh, histories, uh, peoples that live in those areas. And so I think there are many Wests that we inhabit. And so for me, it's even more specific yeah so the colorado plateau where the navajo nation is located it is a particular kind of region that i'm familiar with and so i think about it differently than i think about where i live in arizona currently which isn't considered southern arizona and this is a whole new experience for me too you know this is my first time living in uh this part of the state even though it's within the same political boundary they're very different regions and so um so, um, so yeah, I think that the Navajo Nation and landscape around the Navajo Nation is distinct from other parts of the of the of the broader West. Um, and the Navajo Nation and that landscape, I would include much of northern New Mexico and even into southern Colorado. So it's is beyond the reservation boundaries into a particular look and feel of the place. Yeah, I always when I teach about the West. I have a series of maps where I ask my students to vote where the West, you know, begins. And I have these different areas shaded in. And each map gets progressively more and more subdivided into, you know, like Pacific Northwest, Northern Plains, Southern Plains, all like or Texas, everything else isn't Texas, you know. And we all have a good laugh about it. But it is <laughs> it is silly to say like the West is X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It, it is many Wests. It's a mm-hmm. really... Um, well, I'm... Tell us about how you um, came to this topic of coal and, uh, you know, uh, power, electricity, uh, infrastructure, industrial development uh, in Navajo country. Yeah, I came to the topic by looking at it as a development question. So many of the other people I worked with were concerned about it as an environmental question. And um, when I was back east, I was working on a, um, a fair trade work and working with organizations thinking about international development. Um, and so I was thinking about places that were producing primary commodities like tropical fruits that eventually become consumed in the global north or in the so-called developed countries and um, and how that shapes the regions that are producing those things, um, shapes of politics, the economics, of, and the, um, you know, the social relations between people. And, um, and so I took those questions and I brought it back to the reservation after thinking about it in an international context and was thinking, what is it, the, what is the commodity that we're producing? What is the thing that we're selling that structured our relationship with the outside world? And, um, and at that time, you know, this was in 2007, I had returned and was working at Diné College in the, in the center of the reservation. And, um, there was a, um, a proposed power plant to be built on the eastern end of the reservation. It never was built, but there was a lot of advocacy for it from developers, large energy companies, uh, officials in the tribal government, and then there was a lot of opposition from environmental groups. And then it was, you know, slap me in the face, basically, say, this is our development question. You know, coal, it's something that has long uh, structured our relationship with outside entities, in this case, energy companies, utilities, even state governments. And um, and it has made 
certain kinds of economic opportunities um, as well as path dependencies possible uh, within the reservation. So, um, so yeah, that's uh, that was what um, brought me interested or made me interested. Sorry, brought me to the topic and made me interested in um, in coal. And um, and then as I, I was further thinking through this question about how does coal structure our relationship with the outside world. Um, I saw that there was a deficit in attention in the existing scholarship and publications, meaning like popular publications, not just scholarship, things that are newspapers or standalone uh, popular books, um, maybe things that are more polemical or has some sort of political angle to it. Uh, the, the thing that was missing was the perspective and experience of Diné co-workers. So I felt like that was something that needed to be focused on. It was hard to explain, you know, the impact of coal without thinking about the workers. <laughs> but we were talking about it. Uh, we were talking around them often. And so um, so that's why I organized my research to to try to focus specifically on on the perspective of some of the workers. And again, you know, what I find is that there's not a unified perspective that there's a diversity even among the workers on how they thought about the industry and who was a worker and how they even define themselves. And, and so it became complicated quickly. But, you know, what I really wanted to do was look at the laboring force that was part of this industry for, for decades. Well, it comes through really clearly, like you're very clear and intentional, uh, and in very implicit ways as well, constantly reaffirming this idea that this is not a monolithic experience. Uh, you know, there's no singular Navajo, you know, point of view, uh, which is, is, is important. Um, and that's something that, you know, the broader field of indigenous studies is always kind of hammering at because, uh, the rest of the, of the nation, you know, just thinks in such, uh, simplified terms. Um, I also think it's powerful. Yeah. There's like, it's like development history and you say other people have come at this with environmental questions, but really yeah. like you can't even really grapple with the environmental questions if you're not grappling with these development, like it's all so intertwined. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And so you are bringing a lot of kind of uh, some questions and ideas and things that are missing, I think, from a lot of things. I'm also fascinated with commodity histories um, as a entry oh, yeah. point, right? Yeah. Like, like you know, there's books on like cod or salt, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. as like an entry point to explore really broad things. But you, it's not just coal. I mean, water is a commodity of sorts. Well, yeah. especially in Arizona, um, yeah. uh, and electricity. Um, yeah, th- there's lots of there's multiple commodities in a way that are being exported out of you know Navajo lands through all these processes. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. I think that uh, commodities allow us to start entering into a conversation about production and about how how um, people's work. Uh, commodities are often tied to work, and so how people's work is structured around a certain thing, a certain item, uh, their labor involved in. And often these are seen as resources or natural resources. And um, and they then they structure our relationship with the land and the environment. Um, it's interesting. I wish we had this conversation earlier because in, in uh, earlier this week, I was trying to talk to my students about commodity chain analysis, which I found very useful when looking at coffee and where like values added along 
the commodity chain and then how that exemplifies the relationship between importers and exporters or producing countries and, and consuming countries and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so I think that is no, that is also visible in the production of, in the making of commodities coming out of reservations. And so it's a, it's an interesting way to think about uh, familiar problems and questions. So if we think about coal as not just an existential environmental question, but like, oh, it's a, it's a commodity that's produced. Um, what do we find through that analytical entry point, you know, and that's where we find, oh, you know, the consumers of this, the utilities and their constituents, ratepayers or corporate commission, you know, state corporate commission, all of those entities and people structure and limit what is possible even in, in terms of energy production for tribes. So it's a, it's a, it's a, you, you know, directional relationship when it goes in one direction and then we have to respond whether we agree to that or not, but there's not that we don't have options outside of what utilities are willing to offer in terms of energy production. So then it, you know, looking at coal as a, as a base substance that produces the commodity, which is energy which is that's the thing that's eventually consumed. People aren't buying coal raw, they're buying it after it's converted to energy. Then you see the people who have control over that conversion process, the utilities who are managing and owning the power plants, they're the ones that are structuring what is possible in the production of that commodity. So yeah, it is an interesting way to think about some of these problems. And I think in the West, especially in the rural West, where there are lots of communities that, you know, not that it's like a single economy, but there's a lot of places where the entire community revolves around, you know, a mine or logging or, you know, extractive industries or other things. And because of their rural or remote nature, there's not other options. And so that power differential becomes mm -hmm. even more pronounced mm -hmm. and the impacts of the decisions that are going to be made. Um, it's not just that a few people will lose their job. It might be almost everyone in town and then all the service industries that, you know, serve, you know, the community and whatnot. So, yeah, it can be devastating to places when they lose the one thing that, you know, is employing a lot of people and yeah. that it's, you know, it's useful to outside entities. So I'm curious though about if you had any trepidation approaching this. I mean, so this is like really messy. I mean, you yeah. write about how, how it, they, this brought uh, a generation of development, um, livelihoods for people, economic security, also brought some real environmental issues mm -hmm. uh, and, and problems. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, and, and you you start you started doing this project in the middle of a very fraught kind of political moment that we'll get to. Um, were you concerned about the possibility of your work like um, being more disruptive than constructive? Yeah, it's hard to know how it's going to be interpreted, um, and. Um, I, I'm trying to think back when I was, yeah, no, it was always a pressing concern. And I think more, not so much in this book, but like when I was writing about what I perceived as a failed energy project, proposed alternative energy projects that environmental groups are pretty forward. So to me, that's where I had this, this quandary of like, 
is this helpful or is this hurt harmful? This kind of research where I was pointing out what I thought were flaws in their proposal and how um and how and why that and arguing why I thought the flaws were there. In other words, like I thought that their approach to development in the reservation was one that was based out of outside models of entrepreneurship and bringing these um, small scale energy projects onto reservations. And it was not attentive enough to the way that tribal governments have been structured over a 70 year period of time and how tribal governments have a decision-making apparatus that's responsive to large scale projects, things that are involving hundreds of acres or involving a lot of capital up front from outside entities that the tribe itself doesn't front. Um, and so governments are set up that way and also are experienced that way. So a lot of the officials working in the Navajo Nation, you know, cut their teeth on coal contracts and then they're looking at uh, alternative energy projects and it looks completely different. And so they don't know how to respond or they think they're thinking about wind and soul in coal terms and then that creates an impasse in some ways and so and so i was saying you know it's really the the political mecha the political institutions that, that are making it harder for these this approach to alternative energy projects to to develop and i think you know in being critical i can be it could be hurtful um to say the least to the people who were put a lot of effort and um and uh, personal um yeah, their personal them they put themselves in effort and money uh into the av advocating for those projects and you know taking a step back from my perspective and and being critical of it can can be can be seen as hurtful to those people so that's why I was a little bit worried about how I was characterizing that work. And I don't know if I did the best job, but I was just trying to be as honest as I could. But you don't want to be perceived as like a troublemaker, you know, who's... Yeah, I don't want to be... becomes a persona non grata. You know? Or just, you know, a naysayer or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Which is maybe my natural personality, so... <laughs> <laughs> so that can be a problem. <laughs> well, what, what's unique in kind of the broader historiography of, you know mining, re uh, resource extraction, energy production, what's, what do we need to understand that's unique about the, you know, the, the indigenous kind of tribal layer to your story that is, you know, maybe not present in others, or is there a, what other work or how are other scholars engaging with, you know, tribal nations in energy production or resource extraction? Is, is there a lot of this work being done and how does yours fit into that? Yeah, I think I think there is a lot of work being done, and um, um, you know, a couple of books that I rely on are Andrew Needham's Power Lines and um, Dana Powell's Landscapes of Power, and um, I think I have Dana's book right here somewhere. But um, what is it that that I'm doing? What, well, I think what I try to emphasize here, other than the unique way that sovereignty exists is expressed through energy and extraction projects. Um, you know, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm adding to the chapter in Needham's book where he's like talking about Navajo nationalism and I'm defining it, I think more specifically to say it's an aspiration towards sovereignty defined through 
energy and extraction in a particular way. And then on top of that, um, the other thing I'm trying to highlight, which is building off of people who work in settler colonial studies, is the colonial nature of contemporary reservation governance. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between people who work on tribal governance, even economic development, you know, um, people who are saying what we need to do is focus on institutions and capacity building and nation building. Um, and then people in different fields, subfields saying all of this is explained through settler colonialism. And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot that's useful in both of those approaches. So I'm trying to find a way to get those things to connect. And I think what, so what I try to do is say settler colonialism as a theoretical framework can be, can be applied to bluntly. Um, and often is like, I think, um, conflating historical experiences with the way contemporary colonialism manifests. So, you know, I know that's not going to be satisfactory to people who really are pushing settler colonial theory, but um, that's how I see it. And then on the other end, I'm saying, oh, you know, our thinking about um, nation building has to be aware of the colonial context. And sometimes we naturalize the legal political framework into a euphemism called federal Indian law, which is this a a series of decisions over a 150 year period, which is further limiting what indigenous nations can do and giving absolute power, almost dictatorial power uh, to, um, to, to the United States in, in, in Congress. And, you know, they use this term plenary power. So this is a, a, a colonial relationship in any way you define colonialism, right? It's, one where the land is held in trust, so-called, by the federal government on behalf of tribes who are seen as too stupid to manage their own affairs, right? That is a presumption that that informs uh, this trust status going back to the 1830s. And and really, it, it it's convenient because it allows the United States to retain control over those lands, which is in effect colonialism. And so calling that out as colonialism, I think is important because there's only so much work you can do internally with institutions if you can't do other things that other nations are able to do in the larger nation state system. So one example, one hypothetical I always offer is, okay, if the Navajo nation wanted to enter into bilateral treaty agreement with Mexico and have its own agreement with Mexico or with China or with Cuba, the United States would prohibit that. Any other nation is allowed to make those decisions on its own. So if the Navajo Nation or any other indigenous nation is not allowed to do that, how do we characterize that? That's a form of colonial control. And I think that that is something that we need to continue to highlight when we're talking about nation building sovereignty and institutions within India country, while at the same time not allowing that to be just the only explanation for what's going on. I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, difference between how um, utilities approach tribes and how, um, how, let me, I'm trying to think of another, 
how utilities approached tribes today and how settlers dispossessed land maybe 120 years ago, or how the pressures from livestock um, grazers around the reservation existed. I know that's not going to be something everyone supports. My interpretation is not going to be, you know, unanimously taken up, but that's how I'm seeing it based on, you know, my observations um, with, uh, with uh, these lease contracts. And it's not to say that they're any nicer. It's just to say that they're harder to identify. They can be more, um, they can be hidden. And so sometimes we don't really see the colonial vice grip in operation. That's what I'm more worried about. It's not to say, oh, you know, things are better now. It's just to say that it's subtler and it's something that is that we need to be more attentive to. You know, these lease contracts are just new forms of, of colonial control that uh, put us into a reproduce existing colonial relations for another few decades or for another or for um, for forever. In the case of water rights, you know, we're just relinquishing outside claims or relinquish or in a broader sense, we're relinquishing alternative ways of thinking about water when we agree to a water settlements because we're conforming to the logic of a water regime that is defined through the Colorado Compact, the Boulder Canyon Act, all of these subsequent acts that are based on the Colorado Compact and the division of the waters to the to the Colorado Basin states. And, you know, I think that's a fundamental transformation of how we think about water and how we use water. And so we're doing that, but we don't really know we're doing that when we sign these leases or we sign these settlements. So those are the things that I'm trying to highlight in the text, both the, the sovereignty aspect, how sovereignty is uniquely defined through energy extraction, and then also uh, the ways that colonialism is reproducing itself in ways different from land dispossession or other kinds of colonialisms that we're more familiar with that uh, that we we can identify happening in the 19th century. I, I find these kinds of approaches really satisfying, though. Like any books I read that seem to simplify things down to like, you know, grand unifying theories yeah. um, or, you know, partition history or experiences into like really discrete um, stages, right? No, the, well, that colonial stage is now over and now it's this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't find that satisfying because it's always more complicated. And so a lot of your work is saying that actually there, there's forms of colonialism still going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I find that, I find that very compelling or I'm the least... Um, less initially suspicious because because <laughs> you're not trying to say like, hey, here's all the super simple answers. You're yeah, kind yeah. of the opposite, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, you that this really comes out say like in this decision making process. Maybe we should get to the actual content of the book. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, through, I think somewhat. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we've, yeah, we're, we're some of the three. But let's like talk about some of the stories. So like, okay, you know. You talk about you know like not the Navajo Nation in a way is exercising sovereignty and agency, and its decisions to engage with extractive industries or sign these leases on you, know, uh, you know power plants and so forth. Um, you write, um, and I'm going to quote. I I, I'm, I always apologize when I quote people to themselves. It's it's, it's the all worst, right. but I'm going to do it. You write, um, it, it can be a way out of colonization, which on its face we think good, right? Um, but it's I mean right and a greater entrapment into capitalist processes and limitations. So, um, 
the exer this exercising of of sovereignty has at least in this way comes with costs or with um there, there's hooks on yeah. it right um so, so how does how does governments and utilities how do they first approach the Navajo Nation ab about uh, you know, like a coal-fired um, electric plant at the Navajo Generating Station. How did that come to be? And then maybe we can then work our way up to the debates over its renewal. Yeah, the origin story. I, I mean, this was, a for me, the most interesting part of the research was uh, getting into the archives and, you know, uncovering. Uh, it's not an unknown story, but for me, it was, I learned about it in a different way by looking at the actual um, memos and and um, papers uh, in people's uh, archives at at the here at the U of A or at ASU, um, and thinking about uh, how this this thing came into existence on the the reservation. So sorry, that was all very vague. But let me get <laughs> more so uh, so you know as I was going through this um, lease renewal process and and thinking about. What was going on on the reservation in 2013 while I was doing my field research? I was trying to think about how that we got into this in the first place. What was when did the power plant um, originate, and where where did it in in the Kayenta mine and all that? And um, you know what I found is something that's known. People who at SRP even told me this that the power plant was built in order to provide power for the Central Arizona project. But to me, this, excuse me, exposed an interesting dynamic that um, I hadn't anticipated before going into the field, which was energy was serving water. And the, some of the narratives before that, especially when we're looking at the site of extraction, like where Black Mesa mine was or Kianta mine, a lot of the critiques was its ex use of water, um, especially the coal slurry that existed in the previous mine. You know, using aquifer water to move coal towards energy. And so it's like seen as a profit. Your pro Peabody's making money off of water that's being destroyed from aquifer, which is all true. But then, you know, the larger picture is that power plant that I was looking at, the Navajo Generating Station, was built not for Peabody, but for Salt River Project for Air the state of Arizona and to move water from the Colorado River into Phoenix and Tucson. And that was a larger politics at work in the 1960s when the tribe eventually agreed to a lease with with uh, with the utilities. Uh, in this case, the Salt River uh, sorry, Salt River Project. And um, this is in '69, right? This was in 1969. Yeah, and so that lease, um, you know, leading up to it was really interesting. Um, there was a uh, Early, earlier in the decade, in 62, I think it was, um, the tribe had agreed to a, wait, let me pause, you know, that thing where we do that pausing. I want to say this, I have a new way of describing this. So I say a lot of times we think about the origin of our, of our water economy, or sorry, of our coal economy as, you know, going back to the establishment of the tribal government. Some people are going to say it's 1923. And I'm saying it's 1963 with the, uh, is that the year? <laughs> I don't even know the year that I'm saying the origin. <laughs> with that, with the decision 
with Al Arizona v. California on uh, over the waters of the Colorado River. So in this case, the special master agreed with much of Arizona's claims about how much water it could divert and how much and where it has priority rights. And the Supreme Court affirmed this, and I think it was in the year 1963. And, um, and that gives Arizona the momentum to build or to, to try to get their, the Central Arizona Project built. What becomes a Central Arizona Project, didn't have that name at the time, but this, this canal system to just divert water from the Colorado River into Phoenix. This was a longstanding project by Arizona state planners. And so that is the origin of this energy question and problem that eventually manifests into the Navajo generating station in Piantamai. And so for me, it's that decision that has more, more bearing mm -hmm. than the stuff that was going on in the 20s with oil on the other side of the reservation. And so what then happens is um, the tribe supports uh, the, 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 the Department of Interior and, um, and yeah, the Department of Interior State of Arizona's efforts to try to build two dams along the Colorado River, the Bridge Canyon Dam and the Marble Canyon Dam. So we have a couple of resolutions that the council passes say, we would like this because it'll bring benefit to us and also the state. Yeah. This was written by somebody. I don't think it was the council delegates who were writing these. It was, we had an attorney, not a Navajo guy, Norman Little, who was very much you know, influencing the dialogue and the debate around the, these energy questions. What what were the benefits that they were then listing? Um, saying, Here's were, why we should do this. That people could work there, um, and that even that some energy would come from it to the tribe. I believe that's what it said in the resolution. You know, you have all this justifying language up front preamble, and um, and it just vague benefits, right? Nothing very specific like what we eventually get in in the coal mine. Um, and so, so then. Um, you know, a few years later, um, the Navajo Nation rescinds those leases in 1966. Norman Little says, no, you what you want to do is you want to pursue coal. Um, and there's this whole effort to get the Navajo Nation to open up its coal economy. And the reason for that is because um, the environmental groups who were opposed, like the Sierra Club was opposed to the building of those dams along near the Grand Canyon, the flood, and they, you know, some of them had already, were already regretful of not strong, more strongly opposing uh, Glen Canyon Dam and the and the making of that. Um, I mean, sorry, yeah, the Glen Canyon Dam and the Lake Powell and in in the back, you know, and the building up of, of really nice canyons in that area, and so. You know, they were already saying we should have not allowed that to happen. We should oppose it even stronger than we did. We can't let two new hydroelectric dams uh, occur in the same region. So, um, so for them, you know, they said coal is a better alternative. Secretary of Interior Utah said that state of Arizona was fine with it. So they said we need this. We need a power source for this for our proposed water diversion. It was going to be a hydroelectric dam. A lot of environmental groups are opposed to it. We know Navajo have coal. They need jobs and development. It's going to be beneficial for them. It's going to be beneficial for the state of Arizona. It's going to be beneficial for um, 
for Upper Basin users because we will put 34,000 acre feet into a lease agreement uh, with with the uh, Navajo Nation so that at least that much amount of water is set aside so that Arizona and California and Nevada don't overdraw and and threaten Upper Basin water diversions. So everybody's happy. It's win 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 <laughs> for states. It's never win 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 though, is it? <laughs> exactly. And then the environmental groups are happy. That was the other group I forgot to consider. Mm. And so that is the origin of that project. And what I always think is interesting is that, you know, people were didn't anticipate this long long-term socio-cultural identification with coal that eventually develops. And then they, you know, they didn't really appreciate the degree to which we'd become dependent on those revenues and how we wouldn't develop other industries. It wouldn't be a catalyst for other things. It would just be the thing that we we use as a as a form of of jobs and revenues. And um, that's the kind of the entrapment that you it is it is you write it about. is entrapment. And yeah. then and then the um and maybe an entanglement. Um entanglement or... is good because uh, that built of um, Jean Dennison's work, and that's the concept that she's been defining. So, yeah. but then you can get more of the the, the metrics uh, of and definition of what an entanglement means, a colonial entanglement. If and that's the work I cite when I'm thinking through this. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the other thing that people weren't considering was greenhouse gases and climate change. So, you know, the environmental groups were like working in this. I don't want to say it was preservation movement. It wasn't preservation at the time, but a conservation logic that was about environmental aesthetics more than ecology. Yeah. And even more than, you know, larger questions of uh, climate change. People weren't really thinking about that at that time, even though, you know, there was measurements of carbon in the atmosphere and they just didn't appreciate the phenomenon enough in, in 1969. So then... We get to 2013, all of that has changed. You know, people are aware of climate change and greenhouse gases. People are aware of dependency. But at the same time, you have this whole workforce that had been working at that mine, in some cases for 40 years, whose livelihoods and jobs were at risk. That is something that wasn't predicted or appreciated at the time of the signing of the lease in 1969. So from 69, we fast forward, the lease is going to expire in 2019 and the Navajo Nation decides in 2013 to start when maybe we'll renew this lease early. And, you know, yeah. and so, so how are those debates? I mean, you've already kind of hinted at this because the situation is so different. How do the debates unfold differently in, you know, what is that 45 years later than in 2013, right as you are stepping into this world to try to like uh, write a dissertation? Um, what was different about the debate about lease renewal than the original lease debate? Well, we had, we had, yeah, we had 40 years of experience with coal and, um, and one thing is, um, you know, originally the, the, the rate for the coal extraction was really low at the mine site, you know, so we're, even though we're talking about a lease for the power plant. Our experience has been negotiating better terms at the mining part of the of the coal uh, energy complex, and so, um, so you know, after these initial leases were signed, well, the land lease in '69 and and leasing for the mines in the '70s, the mines opened up in the early '70s, um, 
and currently while the, the power plant is being constructed, then, you know, there, I'm forgetting the rate, but it was like cents to the time of coal, 16 cents. It was a federal land rate at the time. So, um, this goes back to, um, uh, I'm blanking on the, the act that everybody wants to repeal at this point. Uh, oh, the general mining allotment. The ge- yeah, act, exactly. Something like that. Yeah. 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 From the 1880s. And, uh, it goes back to like setting a really low federal rate for mining on federal lands, basically. And, um, and because tribal lands are technically federal lands, you know, that was a rate they went with in, in the early seventies for mining. And then we were like, Hey, you know, we're being exploited. We should be able to get a better deal out of this. Um, and this was coming off of, uh, energy crisis, um, that, uh, happened in the mid seventies. Oh, OPEC and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, OPEC really inspired tribal leaders at that time to think about how they can organize themselves into a block, into a decision-making effort, uh, our group that can better come to better terms with consuming societies. So they were thinking about it in the way I was thinking about it, like about 30 years ahead of time. And they were like, Hey, these people are consuming the energy we produce just like the oil producing countries. We can organize better to, to negotiate better terms rather than being exploited as much as we have it. So they create the council of energy, rich tribes, right? CERT. And, um, and um, Peter McDonald, our chairman, was one of the people initiating this whole thing. And this is, you know, the person who's identified by Needham and others as like, you know, working in this nationhood or nationalism language. You know? And then at the same time, we have a lot of activism, not just American Indian movement, but a lot of activism in Indian country. Um, and they orient around the idea of sovereignty and and self-determination. In, in 1975, we have Indian Self-Determination in, in Educational Assistance Act, which puts more decision-making power into tribes so then they can start to run their own affairs. Um, things that are guaranteed by treaty, um, ho- mainly things like hospitals and police force, basic uh, services, the tribe can run um, can they can take over those operations through the through that act? So we start to assert more control. And another thing that's important to think about is that the Indian Mineral Leasing Act in 1938 that was passed to say every uh, this is this is how leasing will happen in Indian country. That act requires uh, the tribe and the the leasee or the leaser to negotiate their uh, agreements every 10 years. So so by the mid-80s, we are renegotiating the leases that were signed in the 70s and say, hey, we don't want to do that sense a ton. We want to have uh, more income coming from, you know, coal revenues. Um, we want to uh, maybe even get a percentage of what's sold. So there was, so that was Peter McDonald and then Peterson Zaw, and those people were putting together a stronger claim for revenues captured by um, by um, coal. So by by the 2010s, then the councils they have now decades of experience renegotiating leases, or exactly uh, renegotiating. And this is why I, I say it's harder for them to think through uh, wind and solar because <laughs> that's how they're thinking about it, right? It's always been coal, like it's or, been coal or the power and, plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, the power plant. 
that this was the first time that lease was being considered since 1969 because it was a 50 year lease and then now we're like okay can we get better terms can we improve our terms so some of the things that we objected to that was in the original 69 lease was labor uh exclusion of navajo labor laws on the reservation where the uh power plant was so srp said they created kind of like the special zone almost like a special exporting zone <laughs> But they say, we're, you know, we're in this lease, we're exempt from Navajo law. And so, um, and so Navajo Nation wanted to assert claims, labor claim, labor rights, right? They're just saying, will you, when we have a labor dispute at the power plant, that goes to Navajo courts. That doesn't go to outside courts or Coconino County. And, um, and SRP refused that and said, no, you have, that's part of the lease. We're not going to be part of that. If you enforce, if you, change that we're going to walk away and yeah. then the other thing was water and water rights and we said we want srp to not object to our claims on the upper basin water you know that hasn't been allocated to either the city of page um or any other user in that north of these ferry and then srp said no if you insist on that it's going to be deal killer so those were the two main things we were trying to adjust was the labor and the water in the lease. We were saying, hey, we've been exploited in the past. We're no longer this gullible council. We can assert a strong claim over these issues. And then SRP said, no, that's that's not going to happen. And in the end, we agreed to their terms. So that was, to me, the interesting okay. thing, despite the fact that we've had decades of this experience and this idea of sovereignty and self-determination, we still had to conform to a nineteen to the terms of a nineteen sixty nine lease, and the grand irony being that after all of this, SRP decides to just shut the power plant down. Exactly, like twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. Never in our like, control anyway. <laughs> which, which again speaks to this entanglement, like the by engage, like by deploying tribal sovereignty to enter into these agreements, the tribe gains a lot of things, but they then become entangled in these capitalist systems that they sometimes. Um, don't have power in, and yeah, I mean, I mean, and actually, we're, we're quickly running out of time. Um, but then the the impact on the local communities, as you you write about, like like huge unemployment. If you know, there were there were you know communities that completely depended on be it the coal mining or the power plant for as really the main yeah. economic driver. Um, so this is incredibly disruptive now over the last, I guess, now decade plus. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And it was really interesting how that played out in our politics. You know, we had very polar, we're polarized Republican Democrats, whatever, you know, but no, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't save coal. So <laughs> you know, despite this was during the Trump administration too, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. supposedly he's like, I love clean, beautiful coal, but nothing, but what the reason why coal failed is not because anybody loves or disloves it. It's because it's less profitable. So in the end, money wins, um, regardless of ideology. And, <laughs> and, and money is geared towards Phoenix. It's geared towards uh, big utilities. You know, power and money are centered more in Maricopa County in, in Arizona. It disadvantages rural people, regardless of political affiliation. Yeah, 
again, it's this colonial relationship. Um, I'm trying to remember, is it Gomez, the book that, um, about the Four Corners, blanking on the author's name, where he's talking about like the, these metropolitan cores and then the hinterlands, you know, in yeah. the Four Corners region that like that serve them. It's, it's a colonial relationship, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're um, almost out of time. Uh, what are, do you have any like broad thoughts or lessons that people elsewhere in the West should be thinking about? Like, what are like the Western takeaways that that we should have you know from this work that's a good question you know i haven't thought about it in terms of broader implications for the west so i appreciate the ability to to think about that and i i don't think that my takeaways are too different from what i've been advocating for tribes which is let's rethink our relationship with these industries that become we become heavily dependent on because it creates vulnerabilities right it creates these structures and uh, and then what happens is we have a bust, and then everything. Then we're left standing with all with nothing. Well, industries move on. And then the second thing is, um, you know, let's not look for magic solutions. <laughs> and that's where energy transition questions like, okay, now we're saying lithium is going to save us. You know, EV cars are going to save us. And there's a whole extractive economy around that. Just changes places, changes form. But it's still work digging at the earth for finite resources, using a lot of water, disrupting Indian land, replicating colonial relationships, both like in Latin America and here in the U.S. So there's there's a lot. There's never a good solution. There's never a perfect um, solution to the to the to the what is it? The contradiction of us living on lands um, over using our water and energy energy supply. You know we're we're li- living unsustainably, in short. That's a contradiction of modernity, especially in the West. So we really got to focus on that. And I, you know, in, you know, we might come with bad solutions, but to not have blinders on that, to say, hey, you know, this is just, this is great. You know, not to get into that win-win-win mentality and to actually be aware of some of the costs. Even if we eventually decide to go forward with that, we need to, to be aware of what, what are the potential uh, downsides to the things we decide to do. So those are my two broad, hopefully not too uh, overwhelming <laughs> things that come out of the research. So, uh, Yeah, we got to take these blinders off. Um, do you uh, want to give us any insight into what you're, what you're working on now, what we might expect from you next? Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to develop an article, more of a theoretical article based on the book um, that's just working on the concept of carbon sovereignty and thinking it through energy transition questions. And then um, I'm also working on water rights, and I don't know how that's going, to, what form that's going to take. I'm collaborating with other scholars like uh, Erica Basumek, who's wrote that book about the history of Glen Canyon Dam. My colleague Teresa Montoya, who's a Dene anthropologist. Uh, Tracy Boyles, who wrote this book called The Settler Sea. Yeah, so we're thinking more historically, and we're thinking about how do we rethink the Colorado River in a relationship to water in in the Colorado River Basin states. Um, So that's a project. We don't know if it's going to be book, special issue, something in between. So (laughs) that's that's what we're working on. I think it sounds great. Um, Thank you so much for your time. Um, Congrats on the book. And I really yeah. look forward to, you know, seeing seeing what you and your some of your collaborators come up with next. So this great. Been great. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, I look forward to hearing how this turned out and we'll be in touch. All right. Take care, Andrew. Take care. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, Native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. Cheers.